everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we provide practical insights for racial justice and social change. I am Alicia T. Crosby, and joining me for part two of our season finale is Corey Leak. Hey, Corey. Hey, y'all. What's happening? So, as you know, Andre is still on break, but we have been bringing in different members of our Hope and Hard Pills team to do the interviews and to have conversations on the podcast um, while Dre has been been gone. But we will be really excited to hit you with a special mini episode where Andre and I reflect on the season after we finish our season finale which you are in the second part of. So without further ado, we will get back to the No White Saviors interview with Kelsey and Olivia and Andre. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. And it it seems like there's a lot of damage being done by white evangelicals in particular. Is that true? Yes. 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 I would say the most the most extreme forms of white saviorism and the most violent forms of white saviorism we've seen here has been from white evangelicals. I mean, they were the ones who brought a lot of the the lot of the really harmful teaching for the anti-gay bill about, you know, there was already not LGBT inclusion and and protections here, but then white evangelicals from America, Scott Lively, coming to Uganda and preaching that, you know, Ugandan people who are of a sexual minority should be put to death. Like that was mm. from white evangelicals from the church called IHOP, International House of Prayer. Right. And so you have that, right. you have like, there's been, Uganda has been such a yeah. hotbed for religious extremism and religious terrorism. That's what that is, right? Like we have to call it what it is. Right. I want to lean into that some. Because I don't think that people always think through, like, that there are real consequences to what is being preached and what is being said. You know, like, in the States, I think a lot of, when we talk about LGBTQIA people and, and civil rights for, for people in, in that community, I think a lot of it remains in the abstract for people, yeah. right? And um, so, I mean, we know that we know that in the Bible there is a passage, you know, there are certain passages that, you know, people refer to as clobber pas- passages that are exactly what they so- sound like. They they do say things like you should put, you know, um, a man who lays with a man like he lays with a woman to death or something like that. Right. But the people who advocate for that kind of thing here, they're not looking at the reality. Right. Of like. That's not just an idea that you're putting out there. That's not just something that is in the abstract. Like that is violence. And, you know, so I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because that is something that I, that I wonder about is that these, I, I feel like wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Coney also the invisible children project wasn't that also connected to uganda and jason well? russell comes from they come from evangel white evangelical background out in san diego right so they're right. they're and very much from that it might have been a more secular like movement but that was yeah. that they are very yeah. much from that white evangelical background well yeah so I, it seems like i'm hearing all of these projects right that are that are rooted in white evangelicalism that make connections in Uganda that have real consequences in Uganda. But we are not really the people who are, you know, enthusiastic about these, these projects, these teachings, these missions trips or whatever are actually not there to deal with the consequences and the impact of these things. Does that make sense? Yes. That's spot on. Yes, it does. And that's a huge problem, you know, in when we're talking about people who actually want to create change in the world is that this is why you let the people who you let the people that you say that you're trying to help, you have to accept their leadership. You go in and you listen and you follow them because they are really the people that have to live with the consequences of whatever that is. And so, Mm. Olivia, I heard I heard you say something. Mm. Now, I just heard the way that you the way that you speak when you say that this program or this um organization is led by ugandans 
there's so much passion in your voice when you when you just say the phrase that it's led by Ugandans. And I wondered if you might comment on, you know, the why that is so important. Mm. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, why that is so important is that um, you can, you know, there's 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 a saying in um, in in the African setting that. You can never know the problems of a household unless you're the owner. Mm. You know, that is an African saying. So um, the reason why I speak with a lot of passion is that these organizations, we Ugandans know what our people need in the community. Yeah. We know what our people want in the community. Because if I'm in if I'm in Jinja and I go to Jinja, I will speak the language that they understand. Yes. I am going to speak the language that people understand in that community and I'm going to take the different, you know, views on mm-hmm. what they think about um, a project that I'm going to set there. So um, why I always say that is because we understand, we know what our people need. Because if I go mm-hmm. to the community, I'm going to speak the same language, you know. Right. And... Um, also, it's it's easy for for us Ugandans to hold uh, fellow Ugandans accountable on some of these things because if if uh, if a Ugandan is heading an organization somewhere, Andre, uh, people if people see that something is going on like really wrong there, they would storm that place. They right. would go there. They would you know they won't get scared to confront them because this is a person that they know. And mm. they can address in any language, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. And if it's a white-owned organization, you might spend the whole year without seeing the, you know, the director or something because they will come in the car, get in the, into the gate, and in the evening they're leaving. You don't have time. You have to have appointments. You have to have, you know, yeah, there yeah. should be, yeah. So for me, when I talk about organizations led by Ugandans, is, is that I, Ugandans, no, we know as Ugandans, we know what our people want in the community. If I go to the community and people say, Olivia, in this place, we need a school. Mm-hmm. That is what they need. Mm-hmm. But that is not what was actually or is what is actually happening. Ginger doesn't need so <laughs> babies' homes. Mm-hmm. orphanages mm-hmm. but someone comes with their own idea and like oh i need to set up something like that to help these children they are orphans and you know that is your mind mm-hmm. that is your mind as a white person mm-hmm. but you have not even asked the locals you have right. not asked them what right. they need you've not asked the people right you know so right. for us we know what we want in the community. If we want like a borehole, it's going to be that. If we want a, want tap water, it's going to be tap water. Right. You know, because in that community there are different voices. There are elders. There, you know, mm-hmm. youth that can speak out on what they want. You know, and um, this is the only way we can see development. You know, just as they said mm-hmm. that charity begins at home. I mean, also development, would love to see our development begin back at home in the communities because everyone wants to see their communities grow, thrive, change, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. whenever I'm talking about, and, and also the fact that there have been very, very many successful organizations led by Ugandans in this country um, yeah. uh, gives me like the audacity to speak um, to speak proudly about them mm. because we have seen them. We have seen yes. projects which have which are successful in this country. We have seen projects which are uniting young children, the youth, the you know, empowering them with different skills, public speaking. You know, there's so much that we've seen happen here in Uganda in organizations led by Ugandans. Yeah. Yeah. So I I want to ask you just straight up. Because all these, because it sounds like a lot of people are assuming that Uganda, Africa at large, you know, they need us, right? Especially, it sounds like white evangelicals. They say mm. we, they need us. Mm. Does, does Africa need us? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I am going to say this: that um, what Africa needs from the white people is one: invest in the African people to lead their movement. That's it. 
Mm. If you're going to do mm-hmm. that, invest in people in their communities to do mm-hmm. the work. If you want to be, you know, if you want to to help, because this is a developed Africa is developing every day. I don't call it. I don't say third world countries. We are developing. Right. We are in that movement of development. So if you're going to help, or if the help we need is you to invest in the projects, mm-hmm. in the organizations that are on the ground and believe right. in us and let us lead the right. movement, stand aside and give us way and just, you know, see the history. Just be, don't be part of our history, but stand aside and see us go through mm. our own history. I yeah. think that is really important, you know. Yeah. Give us the chance to to lead because from way back, it's why people who lead everything. It's it's right. them who lead, you know. It, it, the slave masters, the what, the colonizers. So we are saying right now that yes, Africa is developing, and we're not going to say we're not going to say we don't need your aid. Yes, we need it. We don't need it with strings attached. Mm, right. You know that is what Africa is tired of. Yeah, aid coming in with strings attached is very dangerous. I think yeah. Africa's got tired of that. So. Um, we just want people to invest in, you know, if you want to see us grow in our communities, just in, you know, invest in them, stand aside, mm. you know, stand aside and see the African continent growing every day, but you don't need to, you know, dictate on what, what it should be. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like if people understood mm. the history that you're talking about, then mm. they would understand that sending aid to Africa is actually not charity. It's justice, right? Considering Absolutely. considering how much has been taken from Africa and the lives that we enjoy in these, in these countries that were colonizing countries, you know, mm. has been at mm. the expense of people in, of, has been at the expense of African people, at the expense of people in South America and the Caribbean, you know, and yeah. Sending sending money back to these countries and continents is actually not some great thing that we wear a ba- that we should wear a badge of honor for, but it's just the right thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, what do people need to do before they come before they decide that they're going to come to Uganda? Uh-huh. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, the people come. Uh, I mean, we the different people who come. People who come in as tourists, um, they add foreign exchange, you know, to our governments and all that. But also the fact that you come in as a tourist doesn't give you the right to go around taking pictures of random children and you put them on your blog or Instagram and you're like, oh, I was in Africa. Mm-hmm. I think people should now, before you come to Africa, um, know that I'm visiting the African continent. Mm-hmm. I am a visitor. If I'm to do something, can I ask the people who are in Africa, can I ask the African people if they're okay, if I'm taking a picture of something, Mm -hmm. you know, are they fine with that? I'm not going to just photograph random children and, you know, put them on Instagram to get likes. Mm -hmm. And also uh, people who have, who come to Africa should understand that you're coming to meet people, you know, you're coming to meet people, you're not coming to meet you know, monkeys or something like that. Right, You're right. coming to meet people, human beings who have the same feelings that you have, who have the same blood that runs through you, you know, mm-hmm. and who has a, who have a very good history and who, you know, um, are very grateful to be, um, to be, to be natives of this continent. Um, and then people coming into Uganda should not take Ugandans for granted because the fact that you've come from wherever you've come from and you've already, your mind has your own different ideas about Africa. And you're like, oh, after all, this is Africa. So I can, you know, do anything that I want and just walk away. People should get to understand that we, um, we, we are, much as they say, we're all the same. We're all equal. Mm, yeah. It's it's not happening in the world. We're not seeing that because of the different ways on how black people are treated. But people coming to Uganda should learn, should listen to the locals, ask, mm-hmm. ask mm-hmm. and find out on the different things, you know. And those are people who are coming as, you know, tourists. Um, for the missionaries, that is a whole 
That's a whole different conversation. We we might need to scratch the whole thing and start from the beginning. (laughs) That is a whole, you know, different, you know, conversation altogether. But still, um, to the missionaries also coming to Africa, I will. I, I always say that you know America needs more missionaries than Africa because there's so much. Mm-hmm. But for them coming, I mean, I think we are the African people are tired of hearing God calling only white people. This I'll say mm. because 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 of the things that we've done. I was called by God to go up to Africa and save the African children, and you end up treating our children with no medical. You know, oh, if you can't do that back home in your town. Or in your country, don't do it in Africa. You know, in the name of God. Right, right. You don't do it here because um, I know with the to come, this is going to cause um, this will co- like this will spark off another a segment of hate on the African continent right. because of these things. Africa is really tired of all these injustices, and then. Um, I know at one point there will be a revolution on the African continent if some of these things don't stop because mm. people are actually very tired of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if they're coming in here um, for the missionaries, I know I can't stop them because... <laughs> decolonize your Christianity. I don't know. If, <laughs> we don't know if that's possible, but <laughs> I think yeah. Andre and I are, we're all trying to figure that out. Andre, Olivia and I are all trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. I mean, that would yeah. definitely help if people. So I, I was just watching a, a documentary mm-hmm. called Concerning Violence. And mm-hmm. it, it, have you, have you heard of it? I've heard of it, but haven't seen it yet. So it it basically takes Frantz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, and um, it's narrated by Lauren Hill. It's really interesting to watch. Wow. And um, there is a quote in Wretched of the Earth where Fanon says that the church in the colonies is 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 a white church. It doesn't lead people in the ways of God. It leads people into the ways of uh, white people into whiteness oh. and. And even though, even though we're not talking necessarily about, you know, a formal colonized situation, we do see that mentality with people who are going out to Africa or South America or Mexico or the Caribbean or whatever on these trips in the way that they are presenting the gospel. And so when I hear you, when you say decolonizing your faith would be really helpful because you know, honestly, I wish that they would go to, I wish instead of them raising all this money to go to the other side of the world, they would just like go to the South side or the East side or whatever part of their city in America where there oh. are black people, their neighbors who are poor or who are struggling, you know, because of the systemic racism here. And they would just oh. cross the train tracks or the highway and, oh. you know, and, yeah. and invest right in our own neighborhood. Yeah. But it's because of white supremacy. Yeah. Like real relationships. Because I think that's one way things change, right? Like if you really, not like getting to know someone despite a part of their experience or identity, but like in part because of that, like, like knowing people as a whole and as a whole person, not because I think that you always hear that saying within the LG, like bringing back to the like church and the LGBTQIA community is like, love the sinner, hate the sin. But it's like, you can't love part of a person or love someone despite like loving someone despite part of who they are is such a it's such a terrible thing to say. Like, I love you despite the fact that you're gay or I love you despite the fact that yeah. you're black or despite mm-hmm. the fact that you're a woman. Like, no, I want, I want to love all of you. Like that, that's what real deep authentic um, relationships need to be. And yeah. if the church is what it claims to be, that's what it should look like. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so interesting. Like how, just how, how religion has such a huge, role in this very conversation that we're having like none of the other conversations that i've had has the church and faith and christianity been so central to the conversation but it seems really inseparable from what we're talking about with white saviorism Mm. 
Absolutely. And I think that it's obviously because there can, there's a ton of white saviorism that happens outside of Christianity. But I think when you combine the two, it's like, it's like whiteness and maleness coming together. Like the white, like white men being incredibly dangerous in so many different spaces because of the level of privilege that they hold. I think that Mm -hmm. that goes for like whiteness and Christianity in a lot of ways too, is that Mm -hmm. like whiteness is dangerous in and of itself. But then when you tie it to Christianity and because religion um, and Christianity in particular have been used as a tool for colonization, um, that it's just a compounded um it's just a combat on level and i think it also the religious and christian justification for a lot of the dangerous and violent behavior becomes very hard to pick apart because what do you say like there's no logic based in like someone saying god called me here Mm -hmm. like there's no i can't be like show me the text message show me the email i can't ask for receipts so like how do we even where do we go when like a lot of the justification like a lot even in the renee story like is so not grounded in any type of logic any type of reasoning it's just yeah man it's it's just very yeah eh. anyway (laughs) yeah you know i mean when i heard that story though like a part of me is going well you're telling me that god is calling you to be a medical professional go to med school but you don't have any training so why would why would God call you to do something that you clearly cannot do? You know, like, you know, like that's that's where that's where my head goes right. is wait. So why would God call you to do something without the that you don't have the skills to do the skills or knowledge to do? But I I can also see how that argument probably would not hold up within the framework that some that many white evangelicals have if they believe that way, right? Like because. Because I could, I could imagine someone saying, "Well, the Holy Spirit's going to teach me," you know, guide like, me. Well, oh, yeah. if, well, if the, well, if the Holy Spirit's going to teach you, then why are you looking this stuff up on YouTube? Yeah, you know, okay. like, like I could go down the line and try to yeah. argue it logically, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it. I, I'm just not sure of the effectiveness of it. So no, I mean, one one interview she did, she literally, oh. it's like a written interview. We still have it. Um, it's still up online. She did an interview, and one of the responses she gave is that she learned how to treat malnutrition through much prayer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what do you even say? I mean, and it's not like, Oh, go ahead. Even the fact that she says that she learned by looking, you know, keeping around the doctors. I mean, keeping around the doctors can never make you a doctor. Right, but exactly. that is what she says in one of the recordings that we have. There's a journalist that called her and asked her different questions, you know. And actually, this is one question that really made me feel that um, these children need justice. The, 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 the journalist asked her if children, if any children died. And the answer she gave was like, children died like in any other healthy center. Wow. What? You were in a health center and you were in a medical that, professional. Oh, that was not a healthy center. It was just her home where she used to live. You know, it was a, a healthy center in her minds. You wow. know? Wow. Yeah. So such things make you feel like um, uh, this woman, people who are still defending her, have. Um, they don't understand the meaning of um of of the teaching because i don't see in the bible where uh jesus writes about or calls people to you know to come and treat or try and it's it's all confusing and this is where sometimes i get tough on you know like teachings i'm like these guys have taken the bible for their own for something else right because mm-hmm. there are chapters that they will they will change in their own to fit in their own stories for example in the bible i don't see jesus saying that we need to adopt children 
Mm-hmm. No child needs to be taken away from their family because God created them when they wanted them to be there. But they have a way they trick it up and, you know, uh-uh. yeah, and they make it fit in whatever they're doing. And it's okay because God wanted, the moment he saw that kid, I knew they were mine. How? How do you just look at someone and you know they're yours? Mm. You know, a child, and I'm like, God, I knew that that was mine. God told me I was, that was my baby. Yeah. <sighs> it's really this card. It's like it's like the the God card is pulled out whenever you oh, need it, yeah. and you can use it to justify anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That. Yeah, that sounds like white evangelicalism to me. <laughs> yeah. You're very familiar with it. Yeah. So, <laughs> sounds like it to me. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. All right. So, part two. Part two, Corey. Yeah. Ah, tell me all of your thoughts. All of your many thoughts. I mean, evangelicals. Who Jesus. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, golly, the, the anytime people are talking about evangelicals, I could just talk about that forever um, because it is it is so interesting to hear the perspective of people who are on the receiving end of evangelical help. And you guys can't see that, but I'm doing quotation marks, um, lamenting (laughs) the impact that it has. Um, And I just, I'll just say the biggest takeaway for me um, was when Olivia was talking about uh, how white folks should invest in indigenous people that are doing the work. And and when she said that, I thought like I thought about um, how like I I thought yeah that still felt a little like almost like charity until I thought about the fact that white folks invest mm-hmm. in white folks all the time, like all the time. Mm-hmm. Somebody invested in Google. Oh. Somebody in, invested in Facebook. Somebody invested in Apple, and no one. It wasn't a charity type situation. It was them seeing the promise of something growing and becoming vibrant and saying, I want to invest in that. And when Olivia said that, I thought, mm-hmm. why is it so hard for, for white folks to see um, people of color doing work or being on the ground somewhere? Why, why can we not be seen as experts more than we actually are? Why can't we be seen like experts? Why can't we be invested in or receive patronage? Yeah. Like, yeah. Folks do it for for white folks all the time. But like when that same aid, that same assistance, that same like alignment of resources behind a person of color, it then is deemed to be charity. Mm -hmm. And not even just people of color specifically. Also, I think that poor folks deal with this too. Mm -hmm. Whenever someone, I mean, I think this goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about in in terms of how people's humanities are held. Mm -hmm. Like if you are in a place of discovery or if you were in the place of like giving even, right? Like, so moving into like a different concept, where where is this other person's humanity? Like, how are you upholding their humanity and dignity mm. in your interactions with them? I think that's really what all of this boils down to. Absolutely. For sure. What were the big takeaways for you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, one of the first notes that I wrote down is that um, evangelicals are the worst savers. Yeah, they're most harmful. Um <laughs> <laughs> no shade to y'all who are evangelicals but like literally that was the note that i wrote down um but i think it's because of like how evangelical function evangelicalism mm-hmm. functions and mm-hmm. i don't mean this like e- big e evangelical right just like the the mega church you know that people name themselves to be evangelicals i think the evangelicalism in terms of a movement that yeah. it describes itself a certain way that is present in a lot of christian denominations i think that evangelicalism is dangerous in part because some of it is like expansionist and like if we're going to talk about expansionism in a lot of ways we need to talk about colonization and the ways yeah. that like this is like neo colonization like when you Absolutely. go somewhere and you assert your will over that of the people. And this is also a thing that happens in faith. It's like, it's saying that like, it's not even just saying that you don't trust people. It's that you don't trust God. You don't trust the work of God in those people. 
Mm. and in their lives. When you go in and you want to assert yourselves and build your little, build the little hospitals or the schools. I'll never forget this, this, the story a friend of mine told me. He had a friend um, who might've been Ugandan. I think the friend might've been Ugandan. And like during the summer, which Kelsey and Olivia noted that is traditionally a time where, you know, missions group come from, you know, the U S and Asia, not Asia, Mm -hmm. the U S and Europe, Mm -hmm. they go and they build schools. How many schools are y'all going to build? (laughs) <laughs> like, have you asked people what they actually need? And so the friend right, who was telling the right. story, it's like, yeah, apparently whenever the, the summer came, people would just like knock down all the schools so that the next group of people could come in and build it up and take their little little selfies that they knew that they were going to take. And then they knock it down again in order for like the next group to come in. And so it's like, it's, you know, it's just very self-congratulatory and honestly a little bit masturbatory because like mm. you've come in to make yourself feel good. You've done this thing that isn't in alignment with people say that they need because you didn't bother to ask. Yeah. You just, you can see all the ways that evangelicalism has, has sought to like position itself as the default position of all faith and all cultures. I just happened just today as an example to see it's, and it's meant to be funny and it's, you know, it's, it's, mildly uh, amusing. I guess it would be more amusing to me if I didn't see the colonization of it, but there's this picture of Jesus at the Last Supper, which most of the Last Supper pictures that we see behind a European table are so problematic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it is It is such a, oh, it, is, it, it is such like a, a huge deal to put a table there and have Jesus mm-hmm. sitting behind it because you have just colonized um, Jesus in such a, a subtle way that is major for folks. But people, there was one that was just shared um, not too long ago today that I saw where it was showing Jesus at this long table and it had these boxes of mm-hmm. people that were zooming because basically, you know, if, saying if the, if the, you know, if the last supper happens today, but I'm like, yeah, you know, these are the subtle ways that we reinforce the colonization of mm-hmm. indigenous people, even within the Christian faith where mm-hmm. they Jewish people lounged at, at and they were they would have been sitting closer to the floor and they would have been reclining they would have been sitting at a mm-hmm. a giant elegant european table and i think that it's those things that maybe don't matter as much to white christians as much as they do to people of color and people who are like yo don't take uh don't make everything don't center yourself in every story yeah I mean, and, and Corey, even if I can push back at something that you just said, even the framing of that table is being elegant. Like that is a byproduct of colonization. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, that yeah, we yeah. just have to consistently push back at. Yeah, like, for sure. You know, a table is a table. It's like how do we, <laughs> how do we as people of color sometimes frame those tables? Yeah, absolutely. Like what makes this more desirable, more lovely? Like beauty and aesthetic and all of those things are so bound up in like, in in terms of like colonized frames. Yeah, for sure. And so, Absolutely. yeah, loving push. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I appreciate the push. It's good. It's good to have. I got you. I got you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think that an- another thing that comes up for me, and it's something that's also hidden home because, you know. I mean, many of, uh, with our episodes, like we, you know, take these like every few weeks and we right now are in the middle of the COVID-19 panic, right? Mm -hmm. Panic crisis, however you want to name it. Mm -hmm. We are in a place where we are under stay-at-home orders and, you know, quarantine, but like not understanding like the ways in which this might impact people like folks with no white saviors and some of the folks that they name. So specifically, Um, In speaking about, like, the evangelical influence in Uganda, Kelsey and Olivia mentioned what's happening to LGBTQ people within Mm. Uganda and the ways in which the government has come down on them and how, (laughs) you know, people fear, like, fear literal execution because Mm. the anti-LGBTQ measures that have been named by U.S.-based evangelicals, specifically, uh, I think they mentioned a gentleman who was with the International House of Prayer, IHOP. Um, which many of us who Jesus. have been 
in or in or adjacent to the evangelical world are very familiar with. Yeah. Um, but so much of what happens like in, or has happened in Uganda by way of law has been actually like the, the thought production of like people based in the U.S., Mm. Um, and then went into see like their worldview enacted somewhere. And the thing that makes me particularly concerned, like as we're talking about COVID and how people are impacted is that Ugandan LGBTQ folks aren't able to receive services right now. So mm. like a, a friend of mine is like actually like super, super involved with um, Ugandan LGBT organizations. And the other day sent me um an appeal, right? And like it asked me like to signal boost this in other places because folks were in danger of not being able to eat and not have basic necessities during this crisis, which put them up to potentially die of, mm. of malnutrition or famine or what have you, because the only resources that were available were private. But in order to access those private things, you needed money. That money is restricted to them and they don't have familial supports. Why? Because of the ways that evangelicalism has functioned in their country. So like, this is a direct thing. This isn't like some obscure abstract, like, Oh, maybe it impacts like, no, literally people might die in Uganda now because of someone wanting to exert their religious like their religious priorities in another context. Wow. That's, like this matters now. This is on the ground now. That is so heavy, so deep. And it's it just bears out even more how, you know, we've always heard, well, maybe not say always heard, but this idea that we've heard for some time now that bad theology literally kills um, Literally, and you're witnessing that, and that's so tragic that people here who have no idea what it is to live somewhere else think that their mm-hmm. world should be the whole world, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's yeah. tragic. It, I mean, it definitely is. It definitely is. And while I'm pointing to this crisis that's happening in Uganda, also know that this is something that's happening stateside. So some of the relief packages that were proposed before we finally got like the package that released the stimulus into like the hands of the U S people, there were senators who rejected those bills because they were going to benefit people who were LGBTQ. No way that like that actually happened. I kid you not. I kid you not. Google it. Wow. There were senators who, who, because they didn't, because they didn't want, families (laughs) being LGBTQ families, right? Because Mm. they didn't want, like, us, because y'all know I'm queer. Like, they didn't want us receiving the money. There were people who rejected the some of the earlier bills for the stimulus package because the language included LGBTQ families. It's just Because it's okay for us to die. It's just amazing to me how... I don't know what happened... Alicia, and you might you you could speak to this way better than I can. I don't know what happened that that caused mm-hmm. evangelicals today to lose sight of how much culture around them has impacted the way they then interpret scripture and then view to and take their theological positions because there's so much of of there's so many cultural taboos that Christians grab hold of and go, "Oh yeah, this is something that Jesus said or something that Paul wrote when it's not at all. And it leads to mm-hmm. people from communities suffering. I, I, Alicia, mm-hmm. how did this happen? Like, I, I just don't know how it happened and it drives me crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, there, uh, God, that's a really complicated question. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but we might need to get into off air. I mean, right, some right. of this is, and this is a little this is a little bit of like my, like my area of like interest, right? Like part of the reason why I went back to school is to look at specifically the phenomena of how people's deeply held religious beliefs um, are like exercised and specifically exercised in our socio-political realm. Mm. And specific to the U.S. context around um, things like, you know, LGBTQ, issues as well as abortion like some of these things came into be like came into being in terms of being a priority for evangelicals like back in like the 70s mm-hmm. so as you saw mm-hmm. like different movements like specifically the women's rights movements the gay rights movements like gain traction 
um, in order to continue to like hold on to power. There were a number of uh, religious leaders who, including like the original Jerry Falwell, Jerry Falwell Sr., um, as well as like Frank Schaefer and others who sat down. These were like rich, powerful white men, straight white mm-hmm. men, cisgender mm-hmm. straight white men. Mm-hmm. They sat down and had a conversation and they're like, hey, this is what we want to see advanced by way of a moral agenda. And here are like two things that we feel that we could gather energy around. And so there's histories around why certain things are political hotspots like for Christians. And quite mm-hmm. frankly, people don't understand that, understand those histories because mm-hmm. that's kind of like one of those hidden histories that there were choices made, right? So we, we know that, yeah, there were there are choices made you know, that impacted generations of people, right? So, like, if you're going to determine that, like, LGBTQ issues and abortion are going to be the things that, like, you push back against, it makes sense that in the 80s, right, that follows the 70s when this is first a point of conversation, it follows that in the 80s and 90s that you're going to ignore things like the AIDS crisis Mm. and you're going to allow for people to die and that you're going to continuously push at, you know, reproductive rights to the extent that, like, right now, again, in our present context, people in places like Ohio and Texas are actively having to rally from their homes with the government to make sure that, you know, reproductive, you know, choices, reproductive rights are upheld in the time of crisis. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that also kind of got backdoored or people tried to backdoor in some of these bills is shutting down um, clinics that do abortions. But like what mm-hmm. happens when someone as a result of this crisis, ends up with an unwanted pregnancy because their partner did something like assault them because domestic violence is on the rise right now. We don't know the extent to how it is, but anytime when people are in closed spaces with abusers, things like that happen. And one of the, the, a tactic that sometimes abusers use is forced pregnancy to force the people to stay with them. And so as like as we as we live and breathe and talk and are you know in the middle of our own social distancing like we have to understand that like there is very real violence right that happens because people living in their deeply held beliefs decide that they want to execute their vision of the world which is a form of colonization right when you try to make people do what you yeah. do like yeah. this is happening now this is not a, it's not abstract it's not far off it's not somewhere else it's also here I think one of the things that you just touched on for me that I have found so interesting as of late is that a lot of evangelicals treat history as if there's only biblical history and then there's nothing that happened to influence the way we believe and act and behave and mm-hmm. govern since then. Since mm-hmm. since the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. nothing else has happened. And mm-hmm so much has happened like what you just mentioned with uh, in the in the 60s and 70s where white folks white evangelicals with money and power and agenda folded all of that into the way evangelicals approach what they call the great commission to go into all the world mm-hmm. and now add it to the gospel or all of these things that benefit cisgendered white mm-hmm. men and they take those things into mm-hmm. places like Africa um, and they mm-hmm. and they go and they do their evangelical work that's loaded mm-hmm. with all sorts of things mm-hmm. that harm the marginalized, mm-hmm. that harm people of color, that harm people from the LBGTQ mm-hmm. community and in, do it mm-hmm. in the name of Jesus. And it is amazing to mm-hmm. me that this is happening right under our noses. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then they what's particularly like messed up about this is that they hold needed resources mm. in order to like exert that control. So I like to call this quid pro quo Jesus. Quid pro quo, <laughs> quid pro quo Christianity. It's like, I will give you these water treatment pills yeah. in order for you to accept my ideology. I mm. will make sure that your your town or your village or like, you know, your city is given X, Y, and Z dollars if you hand out these Bibles, like this wow. is, this is what happens. Um, this is, this is, this is what happens, man, man. 
I mean, we're <laughs> a, a good example of a, a somewhere that operates in places like Uganda as well as other spots in the global south is um, Samaritan's Purse, which is run by Franklin Graham, who is mm-hmm. Billy Graham's um, son. Mm-hmm. And one of the disturbing points that's coming out right now in the middle of of everything that's going on in the world is like Samaritan's Purse actually was given a really, really dynamic opportunity um, to build the field hospital in New York City. And so in Central Park, they have been, their workers have been really, really hard at work setting up a field hospital to take in patients from around um, New York City who actually don't have coronavirus. And so that way people are still being able to receive care that yeah. is non, not as urgent or as related to like other types of like, you know, sickness and what have you. Well, here's the gag. The gag is that volunteers who are serving that hospital are being required, this was reported, I think, in the New York Daily News a couple of days ago, um, are being required to sign a statement of faith in order to volunteer with them. G-T-F-O-H. Yes. Like Like that. Real real story. Googleable. Oh, my gosh. Um, They were being asked to sign a statement of faith. And in a crisis, like, and this is the thing that's disturbing, like in a crisis where there are a number of other, you know, organizations, including faith engaged ones who are out here trying to form multi-faith coalitions of people who are qualified and desiring to serve one another and to really do their best to like care in a time of crisis. Why, why do your volunteers need to to sign a statement of faith? Like, why is that a priority for you? Why? Yeah, seriously. And I've, I've, we're just often trying to make sure that people well. Exactly. And I've often, often encountered that, again, there's this extra political, uh, social normative way of being that's been added to the gospel when the gospel should just be good news. Mm-hmm. And good news for the hungry is food. Mm-hmm. Good news for those who are homeless is shelter. Mm-hmm. It, it is, it, that's, that's the first good news to them. And it's become so much extra stuff. And, you come to learn that mm-hmm. the extra stuff is evangelical power grabs for um, mm-hmm. colonizing the world. And, you know, and, and, yep. I, and I don't, I would say also that I don't think, you know, and you kind of said this earlier also, I don't think that every evangelical is, is this, you know, evil, wicked person who's out there doing oh, these things explicitly. But I think implicitly within what is taught between, you know, with what is what the messages that you hear preached um, there's all of these little subtle nuanced ways that we learn mm-hmm. um, the extra stuff that we bring into how we go into these spaces like Uganda and how we, how mm-hmm. we would help mm-hmm. people. And it's, you know, it's, it's something that I, I appreciate your voice on this and, and voices like yours in this podcast, because it is a podcast that's saying, Hey, here's what you're not seeing. And you're given the opportunity mm-hmm. to see it. And now it's up to you to go, well, what do I do with what I've just heard? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that like you just like actually hit on something that I was going to ask both you um, and our listeners. Um, but it's, it, it goes back to hearing part of the challenge, I think with evangelicalism, again, this is like little E the movement mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. of which evangelicals, big E are oftentimes included in. Yeah. Um is the fact that there isn't a listening process. Mm. There isn't an interrogation process. Like you're not asking and then sitting with what was what was asked. Like there's an wow. articulation, there's an enunciation of like what you desire the world to be without interrogation of like what other people need. Mm. And, you know, and so wow. for those of you who have been with us over the course of this first season of the podcast, like so much of what we do with our guests, but also with one another and what we've encouraged you to do is to ask questions, mm-hmm. ask questions, disrupt things, like turn things over yourself, ask about your motivations. Mm. That's so good. Oh, thanks, Corey. <laughs> and we've asked you a ton of things like over the course of this first season. And so um, there's just one question that I had before we end our last episode of season one of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. Um, But it's kind of a big one. It's one that you'll want to sit with potentially over these months until we come back with season two. And it's how can you better posture yourself to listen to what people want and need? Wow. How can you posture yourself to listen to what people want and need? 
I think the, the, the crisis that we find ourselves in, I mean, in the social distancing, the physical distancing that we're going to have to engage in, we got a lot of time to listen. Yeah, we do. We have a lot of time to consider how we can better listen with things that we need to remove. The barriers in ourselves, in our worlds, we got some time to think about things, y'all. And I think that if there's any parting question um, that I could give, like, for a season one, it's that one. How will you use this time? Like, how are you going to posture yourself to better hear people instead of articulating what you want to see happen in the world? Corey, it has been such an honor and a good time chopping this up with you. I'm really excited for all the offline conversations we're going to continue to have about this and many, many other things. Absolutely. It's been such a joy to be able to listen to you talk about these things and uh, hear your perspective on it. It's just been, it's been a real like privilege for me in in the, in the greatest way possible. No, I'm, I'm super grateful for you and for your perspective, which people could hear on your podcast. I'm shamelessly <laughs> plugging you, Corey. Corey Lee has a podcast. Corey, I would need you to remind me of the name of the podcast. It's Existential. And Andre's been a guest. Uh, or he was a guest in season one. I did, I, finished, I did season one. I did way less episodes than y'all did in season one. And when I heard y'all were still in season one, I was like, they know something I don't know. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's, <laughs> the podcast is Existential. You know, while we're on break, you can listen to Corey's Existential Podcast. You can also listen to the No White Saviors Podcast with our guests, Olivia, Kelsey, and the rest of their team. um, Because they've got some really, really interesting things that they have to share. And the time that you spent with them over these two episodes was just a foretaste of the brilliance and the goodness that they have in in what Mm -hmm. they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, signing off um, for this episode, I am... Your host, Alicia T. Crosby, here with Corey Leak. Good to talk to you guys. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for um, info for how to continue to support the podcast. From our producer, Ross, thank you to all of our patrons who've made this first season possible. And make sure that you tune in soon to hear a mini episode with me and Dre talking about our experiences with season one and what it was like to come together as friends and the colleagues. Um to, to do this thing, to help give you practical insights for racial justice and social change. But until you hear from us again, take care. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, AliciaTCrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace.